Often when we come before the Lord in prayer, when we pray, whether if it's privately or even when we do it in a corporate setting like this, um, our minds can often drift into performance mode. We start to overthink our words. Uh, we think about the people that are in front of us. And that's what happens sometimes when we begin to pray. We speak, but are at the same time distracted with the speech itself. And this happens to everyone at some point, but it's obvious from Scripture that the content of our prayers are very important, right? As it carries uh, the heart and the cry that, that we're bringing before the Lord. Uh, the way we pray uh, has to be balanced, right? We are concerned with how we approach God, but we ought to have as top priority the content of our prayer. The content is the essence of our prayer. Uh, and even though the form is important, um, what we're saying to God, what our heart is crying out to God is, is the essence of it all. There are many kinds of prayers exemplified in Scripture, different petitions. But uh, one of the most interesting petitions that I've seen in Scripture is found in that passage that we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians uh, 3, verses 14 through 21. And you'll find in this passage that Paul uh, starts to pray for power. When we think about power, that's not something that we say often when we're together as a congregation, as a church, we don't talk about power that much. In fact, we've seen power abused, and we see people um, seeking for power uh, in ways that don't seem compatible to the Christian faith. But it's interesting to see that power is exactly what Paul is praying for in this particular passage. So let's look at that. We're looking at Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I'll go ahead and read it. This is, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than, we all, uh, that, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you hear Paul emphasizing power twice there in that passage. And even prior to that passage, a few, a few chapters before that, he talks about the same thing. But just a little background. Paul, at this moment in writing this letter, he's in house arrest in Rome at the time of writing it. And you can tell that Paul was very close to this church whom he's writing to. He had affectionate ties with them, uh, and you know that um, when you read the end of the letter, uh, he gives a farewell speech to the elders there. And from, reading, and from the reading of the letter as a whole, it seems that Paul was laying out almost like a small systematic theology. It, when you look at the whole um, 
letter of Ephesians, it, it breaks down uh, important key doctrines of the faith as they relate to the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And it also deals with practical imperatives for the church to follow as a way uh, to live out our status in Christ. So in this section we read, uh, Paul begins to explain that he, he prays for the Ephesian church. Right? That's how he starts it. Uh, you see that in verse 14, where he says, For this reason I bow my knees. It's just another way of saying, for this reason I pray. I pray to God. And so the, verse, the verses that follow that are the content of this prayer. Right? For this reason I pray, and then he, he breaks it down. And we can basically summarize the content of this prayer in two statements. The first one would be that God might strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. That's one of the key petitions there in that passage. And then a second thing that you see in this passage is um, Paul praying that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. uh, That we would understand the depth and the height and the, and the breadth and the width and the length and so on and so forth of the love of Christ. So again, two things that, that summarize this passage, that God might strengthen us with the power of his spirit in our inner being, and that from that we would understand the love of Christ. Let me talk about the first point. Uh, the first point I mentioned was uh, Paul's prayer that we would receive power from the spirit Uh, in our inner being. So Paul prays for power, specifically in verse 16. You'll see that there. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Uh, Again, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, it may seem strange that he's asking God for power, right? Uh, this This isn't something that we hear often. Yet Paul mentions this in another verse. You'll see it in Ephesians 1. Um, if you just turn back a little bit, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. And uh, it says there, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might. There you see... uh, talk about the greatness of his power toward us who believe. So the, the nature of this power is, is what's in question. What is this power that Paul is talking about? And also we see from this verse that, the, well, the sphere in which this power operates, if you will. Uh, and we see that the passage tells us that this power operates in the inner being. The inner being. So what does it mean when he talks about the inner being? Uh, I think we get a clear picture of that in 2 Corinthians 4.16. 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So in Christian anthropology, there's an outer self, and then there's an inner self. Both are self, right? There's not a more important you. Uh, both parts are you, right? God created you as a spiritual being, and that includes the physical, 
and that includes the spiritual, right? Uh, the, you know, often, especially in modern Christian thought, they, there's this uh, dualistic view of, of who we are as a person, and oftentimes we, um, we, we take up an attitude that says, well, I don't care about my body. I only care about the inside. Where God created us both with a body and with a soul. And they both make you who you are. And your body uh, affects your soul. And your soul affects your body. Um, I know this because if I don't have my cup of coffee, my soul acts different. (laughs) Especially in the morning. I'm a little more crankier and uh, more darker. But they both work together. They're both, they're, they're both, uh, they're both who you, who you are. Yet there is this reality that the outer self is decaying. It's experiencing decay. You get older, you get sick, and it passes away. But it doesn't mean that God is going to abandon your body. We know in the resurrection that he's going to revive your body. He's going to resurrect your body and unite it back to your soul. So it is important. And taking care of yourself is important as well as it relates to your spiritual life. But there is a priority. And the priority is that your inner being will determine your outer being at the day of resurrection. Right? Uh, Who you are and what you are in your inner being is going to determine um, what's going to happen in the resurrection. But specifically uh, speaking... Uh, with this passage here where it says 2 Corinthians 4.16 so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day and so this inner self spoken here is the same expression we read in our main passage Uh, Paul's body his outer being is wearing away due to the years of living and also due to the suffering of his body especially since he's gone through uh, much persecution Yet this verse tells us that the inner being remains even after his body wastes away. And so all of us face this reality. As we age, our physical strength reduces and we'll reach a time when our body will not be the same as it was when we were younger. You know, back pains, leg pains, arthritis. Yet Paul insists that those in Christ are being renewed day by day in their inner being. So if you're a Christian... Um, your spirit is drawn to the word of God. Uh, you, are, uh, you have affections for being with the people of God and coming to church and hearing the word of God preached. And all of that is renewing your inner being. Um, and so our souls are being renewed and transformed into maturity and in preparation to behold our heavenly father. This whole thing is about preparation to be united once again with our Father, to behold him without anything hindering that. No sin, no corruption. That's that's what we all long for. And our souls are being prepared for that great day. And in Christ's return, we also have the hope that our bodies would also be renewed and returned to us in the resurrection, as I mentioned before. But in the meantime, Paul places the focus of power and growth to be applied to our inner being. This is where we need to invest. 
the inner being. That's what's going to determine all of us. It's our inner being which, was the, which with the Spirit of God is renewing. And so what, what is Paul's purpose in praying that the Father would grant us to be strengthened with power in our in, inner being? What's his point? We'll get to that. But, but let me say this. I think even the concept of power from God is often misunderstood. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, many people pursue power, right? Uh, in Acts 8, verses 18 through 22, I think it's a good example of a person who was, was pursuing power. And, and he was pursuing power from godly men, namely the apostles. Uh, if you remember, uh, this passage uh, is about Simon, uh, who at the time practiced sorcery. And we, when he saw Peter and John, uh, he saw them laying hands on a few uh, Samarians uh, so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, the sorcerer, was looking and he was impressed by the power that these uh, apostles had. Yet this power was uniquely given to them, to these apostles, for a time and for a specific purpose. But Simon wanted this power, so much so that he even offered money to see if he can get it. He said, I'll give you, I'll give you some money if you hook me up with that power. Yet this was a corrupt thing in, in the heart of Simon. His greed for power was what motivated that. Uh, and look at what the passage says here. Um, I'm looking at verses 18 through 22. This is Acts 8. It says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. He, he was power hungry. Now look at what it says in verse 20. Peter answers him and he says, May your money perish with you because you thought you can buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray that the Lord in, pray to the Lord in the hope that he might forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. And so this, this reminds me, when I think about this, uh, of those people out there who pursue ecclesial positions, e even in the church, and they pursue these positions just for the sake of gaining power. Uh, many popular level preachers are in the position of influence in the name of Christ, but are merely power-hungry people. They just want a position where they can be of some influence over people. Many who, in the words of Peter, should have no part or share in the ministry. Uh, that even, even the very thought and idea should be repented of. And that's what Peter implies here. Uh, Peter's message to them, I think, is, is what we see in verse 22. Uh, these people should pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive them for having such a thought, such a thought in their heart. Yet in the same vein, most of us have heard all kinds of talk about the power of God in people's lives that are not consistent with what Paul speaks about in Ephesians 3. Sometimes people talk about the power of God uh, in a triumphalistic sense, 
which I think is far removed from what Paul speaks about. In fact, it was Paul, the same Paul, who while, while he speaks about receiving the power of God in another place in, in Scripture, talks about sharing in Christ's suffering. You see that in Philippians 3.10. In other words, the power of God in us is not meant to be for personal gain. It was meant to honor and glorify Christ. Which brings us to the question, what's the nature of this power? When we talk about power, what are we talking about? What is Paul talking about? We'll understand this power once we understand what the goal of this power is. And if you look, at, if you look back at our main text, Ephesians 3, if you go to verses 14 through 19, I think we start to understand what exactly is this power. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so from this verse... We ought to ask, what is the reason or goal for this power that Paul prays that we would be strengthened by? Well, the goal of this power is the dwelling of Christ in our hearts for the sake of knowing the love of Christ. So Paul is saying, empower these people so that they would have the strength to have Christ dwell richly in their heart, that they would have the power to comprehend the love of Christ, not merely in an intellectual way, but in a real existential way. That's the power that Paul is praying the people of the Ephesian church would possess. We see that in the end of verse 19, the point of that is so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God what it says there in verse 19. In other words, this power that Paul prays about is a power that makes Christ dwell in our hearts, increase our knowledge of Christ's love for us, so that we would be filled with God. Another way of saying that we would be mature in the way that God has created us to be. And this brings me to that second point, that second summary point, which is that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. Let me say this. I think that when we think about the love of Christ, often we think about our love for Christ, right? God, fill me with the power to love Christ more. Loving Christ is important, but that's not what this passage is getting at. The power that Paul is asking God to fill his people with is a power for them to understand Christ's love for them. Not so much your power, I mean your love for Christ. Now, this is not to say that loving Christ is not important. It's commanded. It's, it's what it means to be a Christian, to love Christ, to follow him in every way. But there's, there's something else that's important for the Christian life, and it's evident here in what Paul is praying for. And it's that the Christians who are born again, those of us who are born again, would receive power from God by his Spirit to learn about Christ's love for us, which has limitless uh, Length, if you will. It, it's, it, it's an everlasting love, a love that has depth. And oftentimes we think about 
about this doctrine of the love of Christ for us, and we think of it in merely um, intellectual terms, but there are levels to understanding the love of Christ, and we're going to get into that now. Again, the power of God working in our inner being of someone, I think, is is described according uh, to verse 17, first of all, by the dwelling of Christ in our hearts through faith. Paul is praying that people who are already Christians would have Christ dwell in their heart. So why is he praying that Christ would dwell in them if they're Christians, so technically Christ already does dwell in them? Well, it's important to understand that what Paul means by dwelling here is not just that Christ enter into our hearts. He's not praying that Christ would enter in their hearts for the first time. Dwelling here means that Christ would reside in their inner being in a way that begins to shape the person as if Christ was actually living in them, right? An example would be, uh, if you can imagine a, a home, a house that's owned by a person, uh, and if it, if it were to be abandoned, if you look at it, if you look at it and it's uncared for, um, we would assume that this house was not occupied by the owner, wasn't occupied by an individual. Yet, if there was a person dwelling in the home, the home would display evidences of upkeep, at least to some degree. So Paul's prayer for the dwelling of Christ in our inner being is meant to express that same idea, that Christ would dwell in us in a transformative way as we exercise faith in him. When you reside in a home, another aspect of this um, analogy, when you reside in a home, you, you, you keep it up. You, you take out the trash, if you will. At least some of you do, right? Um, so when Christ dwells in your body, there's a kind of taking out the trash. Um, and we see this in Colossians 3, 5, 7, 5 through 17, I would ask you to turn there. I think this is a very important um, passage that's going to inform everything that we're talking about. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. And it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Notice the emphasis in you, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Notice there's, there's a strong emphasis on your inner being in these passages, right? And we see in this passage both the, the taking out of their inner trash, if you will, and, and the revamping that Christ does in us. And there's also a command to let Christ dwell in you richly. And by richly, it implies that we let him dwell in every aspect of our inner selves and not in a compartmentalized way, but in a holistic way. And the scriptures tell us how this is done. You see it in verse 16. Uh, He goes on to tell us that we do this by teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so this is saying that God's word and his doctrine should be on our lips as we speak to one another, even in our singing. This helps to cultivate a gathering of believers that are constantly exposed to God's word and are transformed by it as it's read, as it's spoken, as it's sung. And this is how we have Christ dwelling in us richly. Now, verse 18 then lays out, I think, the heart of it all. When the Spirit of God causes Christ to dwell in our hearts, it's to the end that we would gain strength to comprehend, along with all the saints around the world, and the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of knowing the love of Christ. Now, I'm going back to our main main passage here. Uh, Again, when we practice what uh, Colossians had just explained, just uh, commanded us to do, you'll see that Christ will, in fact, dwell in us richly. Um, And again, it's to the end, right, for the goal of better understanding the love of Christ. That's the goal that we see back in our main passage. Now, I find it interesting that Paul describes the love of Christ as having breadth, length, height, and depth. Uh, this is to say that it's, it isn't simply acknowledging the historical events that took place in the life of Christ, and that's how you attain uh, a holistic uh, knowledge of, of the love of Christ. Nor is it a simple acknowledgement of the story of redemption. You know, sometimes we think of the love of Christ, as I mentioned before, and we're only thinking in terms of the doctrine of, of, of Christ, the incarnation, the crucifixion, uh, the uh, humiliation, the exaltation. It isn't merely that Jesus loves me, yes, I know, for the Bible tells me so, although these are vital truths. It's not the totality of what Paul has in his scope when he prays that we would know the extent of Christ's love. The crucifixion of Christ was a powerful display of Christ's love. It should never be overlooked. We should always be reminded of the details of that 
event. But I would argue that it should never be reduced or oversimplified, speaking specifically of the love of Christ. But I would argue that if we are to obey or fulfill that prayer that Paul has for us, then it's to know Christ in way, or know the, the love of Christ in ways that often are um, beyond the intellect, but it's very experiential. The totality of the love of Christ has depth and width and height. His love, as expressed in the gospel itself, is something which, according to 1 Peter 1.12, even angels look to. They are excited to find out more about it. Uh, it's not that the angels did, what, wasn't there present at the events of the crucifixion or the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. They witnessed it all. Yet the love of Christ is something that even the angels long to, to further discover. And although those of us in Christ have been able to grasp at least the basic essential message of the gospel, it is at the same time a message that has multiple layers that are deep enough to feed our souls for eternity. Now the love of Christ is something that we're going to be chewing on for the rest of our life and for all eternity. And this should serve as an encouragement that you can't exhaust the concept of the love of Christ, that there's layers after layers. And sometimes it takes a whole life and, and, and all the, the hard events that um, you may go through in your life to get to that other layer, to see another side of the love of, of Christ. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. Again, these concepts that we read in Scripture are describing a kind of knowing that is existential and felt. It's a difference between reading a recipe, like when you, you, wanna, you, you know that there's something good out there to eat and you look up the recipe and you read about it and you learn about that, what goes into the um, creating of this food, the, the ingredients. It's, this, it's the difference between reading a recipe and actually tasting it and consuming it. That's a big difference. The love of Christ is something that shouldn't be merely known intellectually, but it should, it should be possessed in your soul. I want to tell you about uh, R.A. Torrey. Uh, he was an American evangelist. He was a pastor. He was a writer. This was early 1900s. Uh, and in a short biography that I read, uh, it spoke about an experience that he had while he was reading the scriptures and praying. And at that time, he was really seeking the face of God. And while he was reading, he was overwhelmed with a, conscious, a consciousness of God's love for him that he began to weep. He started to cry. It was just coming out. What happened at that moment? What do you think happened at that moment? It's actually quite simple. Whatever he was reading in Scripture uh, went beyond just information downloaded in his mind. It reached his heart in a very powerful way. I can speak of a few incidents or incidences that I've had, me personally. Uh, I'll never forget a few times when I was dealing with a contentious customer at my workplace. Uh, this was an, an individual who was furious um, and troublesome in many ways. Uh, without getting into too much um, specifics, um, I was able to get past his insults and his threats 
and serve him by helping him reinstate his license. I'm talking about his driver's license. And I even covered the cost. Now, I'm not trying to be the hero of my own story, uh, but, but I, there's a bigger point here. Um, while I worked on his transaction, I didn't speak at all to him. He was just insulting. He was saying all kinds of things. Uh, I didn't say anything. Went in there, processed his transaction. Once I was done, I handed him a receipt and, and a notice that stated that all the blocks that were in his account have been removed. He's clear, and not only was he cleared, but I paid for it. And he asked me what was, what was going to be the cost. He asked me, how much, how much do I have to give the government? And I told him that I covered it, I covered it and he was free to go. All of a sudden, this angry customer who insulted me and insulted the whole organization was pronounced free of all his violations, not because it was erased, but because someone else paid for it. And he didn't expect this kind of grace. This individual all of a sudden changed his demeanor, and toward the end of our interaction, he broke down crying. He started to cry. Now, without even realizing it myself, my eyes began to water. As I looked at him, my heart got heavy, and I felt like for the first time I was experiencing in a real way what the gospel implies and how it looks in a physical manifestation. I was experiencing the effects of the gospel and gospel-shaped love there at that moment. And even while I was in the, even in the middle of it all, while I was uh, covering the payment for his violation, I wasn't even conscious of the gospel at that moment. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was coming out of me almost like second nature. <laughs> um, and, and it was as though the gospel, which I understood intellectually, was just manifesting itself as fruit in my life without me trying to force or manipulate the situation. And it wasn't until the end when I saw the man weep that it dawned on me, it hit me. My senses came to me, and I was witnessing a picture of the gospel at that very moment. And it seems that there will be times in a believer's life when they or you will experience a kind of knowing of the love of Christ that will surpass knowledge itself. You'll experience it, you'll feel it, and you'll know it in your inner being. I'll never forget the day when I got into my first car accident. I was a young man, and my car got totaled completely. And in the midst of it all, I remember standing in the middle of the road, and I was alone. I was very young, and I was devastated, considering how hard I worked to have and afford my first car simply so I can go to work and school. And growing up, I remember my mother, she, she was always very strong with me. And she was strong in general, my mother. Uh, but I'll never forget the look on my mother's face when she arrived at the scene. When she arrives, she gets out of the car, and, and her eyes, I can see it, she looks on the one side, my car completely destroyed, and she looks to the right and sees that I wasn't. My mother begins to walk toward me very slowly, and I witness her face go from strong to just melt, and suddenly she began to break down and cry. 
She reaches out to me and grabs me and gives me a hug. And as I look back to that event, I remember feeling at that moment when I saw my mom's face, I realized at that very moment, my mother actually loves me. My mother actually loves me. (laughs) And it's not to say that she never did prior to that. In fact, if you would ask me prior to the accident, if, if my mother loved me, I'd say yes without hesitation. But it was at that moment that I felt that I really knew in a fresh way that she actually did love me. And Paul, in the same way, prays that we would receive the power to know the limitless dimensions of Christ's love for us. And this, is a, this power is his very spirit that penetrates our heart in the midst of all these circumstances in life. I'm just thinking about the events that I just described, where at those very moments, you, you, you get to learn and you get to know the love of Christ in a real existential way. Paul ends verse 19 by stating that that all this would be done, he's praying that God would give us the power and the strength to to acknowledge and to know the love of Christ. And, And the goal is so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You see that in verse 19. To be filled with all the fullness of God is simply a Pauline way to say, uh, to be all that God wants you to be, all that God has called you to be, to be spiritually mature in every way. And so Paul here assumes that we can't be spiritually mature unless we receive power from God to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. And the whole of Christian life is this ongoing growth of grasping Christ's love for us in all its dimensions. Our sanctification, in fact, is not absent from a contemplation of Christ's love. And to grow apart from that, I'd say, is to grow incorrectly. I would ask you, are you contemplating the love of Christ, the the layers of the love of Christ? Your whole life should be spent doing that. That should be the sum of your whole life. Contemplating the love of Christ, all its depth, width, height, length. And then Paul ends this section with a praise to God the Father. And we read that in verses 20 through 21. And he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think this praise is fitting, considering Paul's train of thought in this chapter, even the chapters prior. The emphasis in the praise here is this power motif, right? Paul is acknowledging that God is able to do in us far more than we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, which we know to be the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1. And this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is now at work in you to do the things which I talked about throughout this class, to, to, to help us to grasp the layers of, of, the, of the love of Christ. And this is the power that Paul prays that would strengthen us uh, till the end. So we learn from Paul's prayer not only the importance of grasping the love of Christ and maturing in that, 
but also the need to seek God in prayer for those specific things. One of the reasons why our spiritual life feels dry at times, feels redundant at times, is because we need to pray what Paul is praying here. We need to pray that God would give us the power by his Holy Spirit to feel the love of of Christ, to grasp it in new and fresh ways. May God give us the same heart that Paul has as he desires to see God's power strengthen the saints in their grasp of the love of Christ. And we should always ask the Holy Spirit to do that work. Amen. Let me go ahead and pray and close this out. Our Father, we come before you asking the same thing as Paul, that you would give us the power to be strengthened, to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to be filled with all your fullness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.